0: Take it, Duke, I'm an alcoholic, and my name's Lamar. Uh, Lamar's my name, sobriety's my game. <laughs> I was and am and always will be an alcoholic. How many alcoholics are here tonight? <laughs> wow, what a sick-looking bunch. <laughs> Did y'all know you had an illness? And uh, I'm gonna die an alcoholic, but if I keep doing what I've been doing, and follow this design for living, I can die with it, not from it. And I don't know how you spell relief, but I spell it R-O, no, I spell it A-A. I can't even, Alcoholics Anonymous. Whatever I will be or hope to be is by the grace of God and you beautiful people called Alcoholics Anonymous. And. Uh, I was introduced to Alcoholics Anonymous many years ago and with a brother of mine, I was recommended for it in Texas many years ago. And they were so anonymous one time, I couldn't find them and I moved back to Maryland and uh, I got sick and tired of being sick and tired and my brother came to AA and uh, and, uh, I learned if you don't drink, you won't get drunk. Isn't that fantastic? Did you know that? And uh, that's all I learned, and I only went to a few meetings. And there's a vast difference in being at AA and in AA. And I was at it just briefly, and I drifted away, and I said, well, I know everything. And, and of course, I proved this big book to be correct. It says in this book that the same person will drink again. And uh, I did. I proved the book to be correct. And unfortunately, I got back. Uh, a little over 36 years ago. And uh, I woke up in bed from a very bad drunk. And um, it was one of those drunks where you wake up and you don't know where you are for a, while, a couple of days, and you come and go, and you hear things, and you see things. And I was in my early 30s, and I couldn't walk. And I was laying in the bed, and, and uh, after I—I after, I don't know how I, I lose track of time, but during that drunk and in recovery, something came over me and said, This is your last drunk. And I've had some other opportunities to get sober, and uh, something said to me, This is your last drunk, one way or the other. And it took me days before I could uh, come out into the sunlight and. I'll never forget when I came out on the front porch. I lived in a little row house in uh, East Baltimore, and um, my neighbor was watching for me, and he came running over. And I hadn't been out for almost a week, and the, the sunlight hit me and in the, in the fresh air, and, and I could barely stand. And this guy come running over, and he said, uh, what's going on over here? I said, I don't know. I don't know. You tell me. And he said, "Well, I hear the bed going all night. He, 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 and he thought I was having some kind of a sex party over there or something. <laughs> and, and it was me trying to hold on to my breath. And, uh, and I, I, thought, well, I said, well, keep it under your hat. <laughs> and, uh, he said, well, next time invite your friends. Although well, he didn't want to come to that. But but this feeling came over me, and." I realize that, and looking at these things in retrospect, I realize that it was that point that we come to when we can no longer ward off the grace of God. I, I, as I look back, I, I can remember one of the first times that God was dealing with me, and, and uh, it was in uh, places of ill repute in uh, Reynosa, Mexico. And some of you been How many some of you have been to Boys Town and sucked in that Carla Blanca beer? and drank that nasty old tequila, and I traveled with a pretty fast crowd, and uh, when we walked in these places, you know, they say, here they come, aha, San Antonio, and uh, it's going to hit the fan again tonight, and uh, we we were the drinking, like three or four of us, we were the type of drunks where there was two up and one down. You'd drink all weekend like that, and you'd drink, and you'd wash your face and puke, and, and uh, refresh yourself. <laughs> and you'd get back at the trough and one of those guys would fall over. <laughs> and uh, they were social drinkers. <laughs> and uh, I remember one night they picked me up, and these nice ladies of the evening, and they put me back in bed, and, as they often did, and, and uh, put me in bed. and. Uh, I I woke up, started waking up, and I would be weeping uncontrollably, and something was going through my head, and I didn't even know it was a verse of scripture, and it says drunkards don't inherit the kingdom of God. And uh, it was about that time I realized that I was wasting my life, and I had a little girl at home that needed me, and I was married to one of the most lovely women that ever walked the face of the earth, and I was never home. I have something in my poem in my pocket that my wife wrote last July on my 36th anniversary, and in there it says that when I left, sometimes uh, I would come back three and four days, you know, two, three days later, and that's the kind of drunk I was, and so some of these things I couldn't explain, and so I called my brother and I said, take me back to AA. My brother said they don't come to AA like me anymore. (laughs) He said, I don't know what they do with somebody like you today in AA. You know them kind that of shake, and, and uh, they stare at the floor, and, and uh, I didn't shake hands with anybody for a year. And my brother used to stand me back there with the hats and coats, and A was small in Baltimore then. We only had about 11 meetings in the metropolitan area. And uh, Bob would bring me and stand me back there, and, I'd st- and they used to want to shake hands when they did. They didn't do that hugging. I'd hit them with the chair if they didn't. <laughs> and uh, we didn't hold hands when you prayed and, and uh, but they used to try to shake hands with me and uh, I couldn't look anybody in the face and I couldn't talk to anybody and I'd just stand there you know like a zombie and they tried try to talk to me I said talk to him he's the alcoholic talk to him I didn't even have a name for two years in AA I was Bob's brother and that's a standard joke that's a standard joke in Baltimore they said oh there's Bob's brother. and today that sucker's my brother. <laughs> and, uh, so uh, I'd stand back there and, and uh, you know, you know, I got sober by not drinking. That's basic, that's fundamental. But I started recovering from alcoholism when I followed the design. You know, I followed the plan. We have formulated a plan to arrest alcoholism. Some of you know what it is to be arrested. Well, these guys <laughs> put that in the book, and uh, reminds me. I, 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 again in that first awful period, I, I just fought booze. I was a white knuckle booze fighter for a couple of years, and. Uh, I just uh, keep fighting it, and and I never wanted to do anything, and uh, I didn't follow the plan. And my wife, I I met my wife many years ago. I'm a Pennsylvania Dutchman by birth myself. I was born and raised in Schuylkill Haven, Pennsylvania. I was raised bilingual, and uh, I married a Texan when I was in World War II. I was an aerial gunner instructor in South Texas, and I married a a girl that I bucked some rivets for one time. We were patching a B-24, and we were shipping them out and bringing in B-29s, and I didn't have anything to do, and they put me up there for a few days, and I met this lovely young lady, and she had me fooled that she was mechanically inclined, and she is. She's a wonderful mechanic. She's a great artist, and, uh, but when we started getting things and accumulating things like normal people. You, I would start buying my my daughter gifts and things, and I'd go to buy a bicycle or a vacuum, say a vacuum cleaner for Annie. And you go to the store, and I would say, I want number 342, that little tricycle. And the guy'd come out, and he had a box. I said, I want the tricycle. He said, It's in there. <laughs> yeah. I said, Okay. So we'd go home, and I don't know if Annie took her coat off or not, but she had one on, but. She's the type of mechanic that all she needs is a screwdriver, a pair of pliers, and an adjustable wrench. And uh, she would go to work, and I'd leave her alone. And pretty soon I'd watch her, you know, and pretty soon I'd see the smoke coming out of her ears. And the harshest word my wife has ever said, and I don't know what it means, but she would say, dadgummit, when she got mad. But if you know what dadgummit means after the meeting, please tell me. I don't know, but I know when my wife says it, you get away from her, (laughs) and and leave her alone. And then pretty soon uh, I'd wait, and she'd say, Lamar, I said, yes. She said, guess what? I said, what? I knew what was coming next. She said, they didn't send the right bolts and nuts. I said, no kidding. I said, I never. And I'd go over and I'd pick up the thing, it's called a plan. It's a design, it's a blueprint, and it has steps. Step one, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol. Did you do that, Annie? Step two, came to believe, you know, and, and so on down the steps. When the plan, of course, and pretty soon she changed a nut here and a nut there and a bolt here, and guess what happened? The tricycle came into place and came into being. And that's basically what happened to me when I started following the plan. Now, we went to these meetings, my brother and I, and uh, I was so sick. I was sober two years, and I went, and then he would go on a drunk once in a while. And I said, do you ever go looking for your sponsor in the blood, blood bank? It's a revolting development. <laughs> and uh, my sponsor would take a leave of absence. And I didn't think I could come without his vouching for me. Anonymity was very precious, and uh, <laughs> he would take off, and, and, uh, and I'd look at this card. All the meetings were all on, we only had one card, and it had some C's behind there, some of the meetings, and I'd only been to a few meetings that we went to regularly, and I didn't know what that C meant. I didn't know if it was Catholic or a card, and I'm I, I said, well, I can't go to any of those, and I wouldn't ask any questions because my father told me when I was a kid, he said, you know, he said, you're not a bad-looking kid. He said, if you keep your mouth shut, he said, people will never figure out how ignorant you really are. <laughs> and I didn't want you all to know I was ignorant. So I wouldn't ask what C was, and uh, I wouldn't ask what a 12-step car was. I didn't, I didn't know what a pigeon was. And, uh, but I kept coming back, and that had something to do with this. You know? I kept coming back. And pretty soon I wasn't back with the hats and coats anymore. And, and, uh, and I knew that recovery had something to do with participation. I knew by then my eyes were becoming open. And uh, I noticed that as the scales fell from my eyes, I noticed that the fat cats get at the trough. And the ones that had, it, had the things that I wanted were at the trough. And so uh, I I was so confused, I didn't, uh, I said, well, someday I'm going to have to get up there and declare myself. Up in them first two years, y'all were they. I'd go home and Annie would say, well, how was the meeting? I'd say, well, they said this, they do that, y'all were they. <laughs> and I said, well, i have to get in the ball game, you know. And I said, well, what name am I going to use? You know, I come from, the, I told you, a German family and... We we're, we're named mostly Henry and John and Herman. And, uh, you know, and my name was Lamar. And that always seemed a little. I'm not knocking anybody's lifestyle, but I wanted to be. I wanted to be mucho macho. I'm one of them drunks that don't have any teeth, by the way. I soak mine. And when you think you're mucho macho and you ain't, why, well, that happens. And I said, well, hell, you know, get up there and say I'm Lamar and I'm an alcoholic. I said, maybe I'll go by the name of Jocko, (laughs) or Bucco, you know. And then I heard them, went to a meeting one night, and they were talking about rigorous honesty. I said, damn, I said, I'm going to have to go with my right name. And uh, I did, and I'll never forget. I, I was a chain smoker, and I knew how bad the drunks were by the number of blisters in the, in the fingers. When I had them in all the fingers on this hand, and when I smoked left hand and fell asleep with cigarettes, I knew it was one of them pretty long drunks, you know? And when I came to the meetings, I used to chain smoke those Pall-Mells. They didn't have fuzz on cigarettes back then. And I'd sit there and smoke, and uh, I'd chain smoke. And about three drags, I'd suck up one of them pell mells I'd nicotine up to my wrist. <laughs> And uh, I saw a guy smoke like me the other day. I wanted to hug that. I'd suck them babies up, and I'd have a mess. And, and after a long time coming to this one group, he became my home group. It's going to celebrate the anniversary in two weeks. And uh, a little fat guy came up to me one time, and he came up to me. He says, you know, he said, you've been coming here a long time now. He said, you make one hell of a mess. <laughs> He said, why don't you do something? At least pick up your own ashtray. You know, they weren't very gentle back in that era. They they were black belt, they nasty. They didn't tell you what you want to hear, they. He said, why don't you do something? And I said, you, boy, he, he was 270. Doug, Doug probably remembers, and Bobby Jones, he was a, he was named after the world's greatest golfer, and he was the world's greatest goofer, this guy. And he was, he was boy, he was big, and he was only that tall. And I'm trying to smile, I had not smiled in years, and I said, inside, I'm saying, you fat little. And I said, I'm gonna put my fist in your gut pretty soon, and about up the elbow, I'll be halfway through. And uh, Why don't you do something? So next week I come in, and, and another thing about my group, the old group, uh, a lot of people around the Baltimore area that wouldn't have fit in too good with this group. It was 8:30 meeting. If you came at 29 after eight, or even quarter after quarter after eight, I'd show up, and they'd go like this in unison. <laughs> and I didn't catch on for a long time, you know. I said, and then finally I said, well, the meeting don't start till 8:30. They said you start being here early and help set up, and you. St- stand at the door and shake hands, and you greet the new people. Well, you're getting sober now. I said, the very idea. <laughs> and uh, so next week I was back in the kitchen making coffee with Lunds and the first cup was our fault, the second cup was your fault. And I started making coffee, and something very important happened. I went home from the meeting, and this is important. I went home and Annie said, like she always did, how was the meeting? And guess what I said? We. That's where recovery begins. We unite. We. I became a we. And I had to do, with those, do away with those little words, I and me, and replace it with we and he. And I said to Annie, we of the Canton Group are going to Spring Grove. That's our, one of our nut houses. And we're coming back. <laughs> and um, So I became active in my group and another thing that my group always talked about was giving it away. Every old timer and everybody that spoke in my group said you can't keep this unless you give it away. Today we send them somewhere. But it says in this book God could have given it to them if he'd so chosen. It said God could have given it to the clergy, God could have given it to the educators, God could have given it to the medical profession, but he gave it to a drunk for drunks. Does it say that? It says it to me. I don't know if it says it to you. And it's our responsibility. And uh, so they they were preparing me to go on 12-step calls. We used to go out and take calls, you know, from intergroup and bang on doors. And if you want to thrill you represent Alcoholics Anonymous at a door sometime and you're not sober too long, and stand at the door and knock. And say, did somebody send for AA? Oh. So I started getting active in that group, and and uh, so then they told me, well now you gotta, you, you, you're got you getting sober now, you're getting it together a little bit. I started sleeping with my wife and, and all those good things. And, and uh, they said, now you've got to give it to somebody. They harped on that all the time. Pass it on. And I said, well, what do you do? They said, tell your story. I said, my story? You mean tell them I grew up on Line wine and homebrew and stuff? And they said, no, just tell them what happened to you. So uh, I went to see this real sick guy one time, and I couldn't get anybody to go, and I went. And so this guy's laying there. He's about half dead like they were sometimes. We had to get them up and couldn't, they couldn't get up. Sometimes we had to bathe them and shave them and uh, babysit them a little, feed them a little. I'd spoon-fed them. And uh lost my train of thought. And I, I would go through all these things. And uh, so I go to see this guy and I'm telling him about my drunk a I said, yeah. And I said, man, I wound up in the old Army Air Corps in World War II. And I uh, was lucky I got out of there. And then, I uh, drink by drink. I give him one of them drink by drinks. And then, um, well, I said, then I went back to that part of the country after the war and, and married, well, after we got married. I lived along the Mexican border for years. And I said, I hung in the Mexican border towns for years. and." I said, yeah. I said it was awful. I said, I appeared in a public sexual exhibition where dues and fees were charged, and, and uh, I didn't lose my amateur standing, though, and, and then then I told him about uh, making a movie there in this place of build repute, and, and one of my friends bought a movie camera when they come out, and so we decided to make a movie. I was only a fit player. I wasn't equipped for stardom. And, and uh we made this movie and uh and then we got drunk and showed it to our wives and they're all divorced but me and um it wasn't real bad but i'm telling this guy and his eyes are starting to light up and then i told him about being arrested for smuggling a prostitute out of mexico into texas and and all that good stuff you know and he kept lighting up i said i'm getting to him i you know, i believe it's working and he started getting some life you know he starts it up and he said help me up and I helped him up and he started washing his face and he says uh, I said does this mean that you're going to go to a meeting with me he said hell no I'm going to Mexico <laughs> <laughs> that's what you call spreading the disease some people carry the message and some people spread the disease and this and uh, I wised up after a while. Well, I started getting active, and and, uh, I I have a Hall of Fame. That fat guy is at the head of my Hall of Fame. I hope you have a Hall of Fame, and if you don't have one, maybe you should start one. In order to be in my Hall of Fame, it's not in archives, or it's not in Cooperstown. It's in my heart, in my heart of hearts. And it's those people, that make up AA, they're better off for having come to AA, but AA is better off for their having passed by this way. They're those people that leave their footprints in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and give us that light that we might follow, that light. And uh, my one of my first mentors was, was uh, the guy that made the coffee and and we weren't very accepted in churches back in that era. We met in libraries and chicken pens and, and a club. And we only had one or two churches in the metropolitan area. One of those preachers was sympathetic to our cause and was a great help to us. And, and uh, so we met in different places. But in Lunds, this guy helped make the coffee every week. After the meeting, he said, now, come on. He says, we've got to clean up. And he said, Lamar, he said, there's still a stigma attached to alcoholism and and we're still in the closet and we gotta earn our wings, so to speak, every day. He said, so let's leave this place cleaner every week than when we found it. And we straightened it up and he says, we can't allow anybody to gossip or say anything bad about us. None of that throwing the cups in the street and the gutter. We police the area. And then he started taking me to the, to the Maryland Penitentiary. And this group, Lunds and these Hall of Famers taught me that I must give it away. So Lons gave me the opportunity to go to the Maryland Penitentiary where I was an, a sponsor for 15 years with Lunds. We started the first black group in Maryland and a lot of things, I'm not tooting my horn, but I had a job in Alcoholics Anonymous for 26 years. Right before I got ready to retire, I started sloughing off the two jobs I had, and my wife panicked. My wife knew that our, our, our recovery had something to do with service. And my wife panicked. She said, my goodness. And she got sick right after that. But I always had a job. And I found out that it was giving it away that was, has been a blessing to me. We were talking about carrying the message at a luncheon meeting yesterday, and, and it, was, it brought back so many memories. And uh, we, we started trying to carry the message, and, and they told me that you look at a meeting, and when we went to the penitentiary, for instance, they say, no, you don't sit together. One of you sits here, one of you sits over there, one of you sits over here. You can sit together all week. But for that couple of hours we're in the pen, you talk to these men and win their confidence. And we went over there and uh, we carried this message. And, they, and then they told me when you go to a meeting, you look for that man that stands alone. And I'll never forget many years ago, I went to one of Bill Wilson's anniversaries and I always looked for that man that needed me. God. And I see this little old dried up old Joker sitting back on one of them fancy sofas. I forget what hotel it was in New York, but they had those thick rugs. And this Joker, I had to go see this Joker. He was chain smoking. I think they were Pall Mells. And he's sucking on them babies. And guess what he's doing with them? He's chain smoking. And he's grinding them in the rug. And thick rug. You couldn't even see him. He was grinding them in the rug. And so. I said, there's my man, that needs a kind word. And I went over, and I slipped in there, and I said, uh, my name's Lamar, I'm from Baltimore, Maryland. He said, I'm Ebby Thatcher from New York. I said, D. Ebby Thatcher? He said, well, I guess so. And boy, he was sick. <laughs> and he knocked me for a loot. He looked awful. And he said, I just got out of a dry nacho. And he said, every year at Bill Wilson's anniversary, he sends people to find me. And he detoxes me, gets me detoxed, and brings me here. And, he, and we had a long talk. And he said, one of the things that happened was, he said, Bill never puts me down. And he said, he's always there to help me. And he said, I helped him. and and he, when the meeting started, first thing Bill Wilson did was introduce the people on the platform. And he said, "I and proudly he says, I want you to meet my sponsor, Abby Thatcher. And I had the pleasure, pleasure of talking to Abby, and he, I understand he had some sobriety when he died, but at that time he was having trouble regularly. And then I saw another man over there who became a friend of mine at that meeting. And he was standing alone. I went over, and I was crazy as heck, and I went over. and. I prayed about it, and I went over, and I introduced myself, and he said, Where are you from? I said, Baltimore. He said, Can I have your phone number? I said, Sure. He said, I'm coming to Baltimore next week. I said, Will you call me? I'll pick you up. I didn't ask him, Who are you? What are you? I said, I'll pick you up. He said, Will you? I said, I will. And I went over there and picked him up. He called me. I picked him up, he said, are we early? I said, yeah, we're in good time. And and Jim, we went to the Broadway group that night. Some of them were there, and Jay and some of them were there this week. And uh, so he said, well, take me up to Hopkins. I'm going to be a patient there who's suffering from cancer. But he said, I just want to go up there for a minute. Will you take me? I said, yeah. And we walked in the vestibule at Johns Hopkins Hospital. And some of you are familiar with that scene, a big statue in there. And it says, Come unto me, all you that labor and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. And Paul went up there and prayed, and I stood back. Tears trickled down his sh- cheek, and he came back, and he says, Okay, I'm ready to go. And we had a long talk, and he said, Whatever you do. By this time, I knew he was a doctor, and a rather famous one, I guess. And uh, he said, Don't tell anybody who I am. I said, Very well. And I, out of that, I developed a great relationship with him. A very fine man, and he did last a long time, and we were very close friends. And uh, so I started doing these things, but, but I was neglecting something. Alcoholism is a threefold disease, and I got sober through desperation. I came here for survival, but I stayed when I saw this design for living, and I realized that the potential here was something else that I would be able to reach my potential as a human being. And we would be able to reach our potential as a little family. I have an only child, and she has an only child. And I realized that there's more to this than just postponing one drink one day at a time. That's only one-third of the recovery process. And uh, so I started, I read in this book that I had to clean up at home. And so I started trying to make amends to Annie first, and I would take her out to lunch, and we we started making dates and um, doing some things together and and it's been a great thing and uh, and then I started taking my daughter to the library and motivating her towards the proper things and take her to the zoo and I started becoming a father and my little girl, she's almost five foot eleven forty three years old the other night, told me. I was one of the best fathers ever lived. I saw this man in the gutter, getting up and falling back down. My father was a benevolent soul, and so he thought he'd see what was wrong. And he went down and he rolled this man over and, and shocked him. There was his number three son, me, in that slop and in that gutter. My father dragged me home, and the next day my father told me something terrible that must be extremely difficult for a father to tell a child, even though that child thinks he's a man. My father told me never to come home, never to contact him, that I was no good, and that I'd never be any good. He said, you're one of those people who will never be any good. I don't want to ever see you again. I don't want to ever hear from you. When I helped bury my mother, I stood there, and my mother was laid out the same place my father was. And you can't make amends always to those people. And I've gone to the grave since then. And I don't believe in praying to the dead. But I stood that day, and I told him. I said, old man, I hope I made it up to you because it gave your wife a home and love and care for over 18 years. I'd make it up if I could. And this poem sums up what I've been trying to say. It was battered and scarred and the optioneer thought it scarcely worth his while to waste much time in an old violin. But he held it up with a smile. What am I bid, good folks, he cried. Who'll start the bidding for me? A dollar, a dollar, now two, only two? Two dollars, who'll make it three? Three dollars once, three dollars twice, and going for three, but no. From the room far back, a gray-haired man came forward and picked up the bow, then wiping the dust from the old violin and tightening the loosened strings. He played a melody, pure and sweet, as a caroling angel sings. The music ceased and the auctioneer with a voice that was quiet and low said, what am I bid for this old violin? And he held it up with the bow. A thousand dollars, who'll make it two? Two thousand, who'll make it three? Three thousand once, three thousand twice. And going and going, cried he. The people cheered, but some of them cried. We do not understand what changed its worth. Quick came the reply, the touch of the master's hand. And many a man with life out of tune and battered and scarred with sin is often cheap to a thoughtless crowd, much like that old violin, a mess of pottage, a glass of wine, a game. He travels on. He's going once. He's going twice. He's going and almost gone. But the master comes in the foolish crowd, never can quite understand the worth of a soul and the change it's brought by the touch of the master's hand. God's love you and me. he keep you in the hollow of that hand. Bless you real good. Thank you so much.